welcome back to What the HR Podcast. I'm Jesse Novi, an HR business partner with CH Robinson. And I'm Mike Toole, HR technology consultant with SAP SuccessFactors. Welcome back to another episode of What the HR. Today, we're joined by Dr. Steve Hunt, who works for SAP North America as their chief expert for work in technology. Dr. Hunt's work focuses on using technology to increase workforce agility and performance by improving employees' capabilities experience, engagement, inclusion, and well-being. An internationally recognized industrial organizational psychologist, he has helped create human resource solutions that have positively influenced millions of employees working for thousands of companies around the globe. Uh, Dr. Hunt has written three books. Um, His most recent book called Talent Tectonics um, has just recently been released, and that is the specific book that Mike and I connect with him on today. Talent Tectonics is all about navigating global workforce shifts, building resilient organizations, and reimagining the employee experience. All topics I know I personally am very interested in, and I am confident that you are as well. So make sure to give this episode a listen. If you end up loving it as much as Mike and I did, please go out to your favorite podcast platform. Leave us a rating and review. Those rating and reviews really do um, help us significantly in ensuring that our podcasts are getting in front of other HR professionals and business leaders. Thank you so much for being a listener of the What the HR podcast and enjoy this episode. All right, Steve, thank you so much for joining us. It's great to be here, Mike. Absolutely. Hey, easy way of getting started. We did read your bio before the episode, but if you could tell our listeners you know, what your role is, and also we're here to talk a lot about your new book, Talent Tectonics, if you did maybe talk about why you wrote the book, and then we can get into it a little bit. Yeah, and the book definitely came directly out of my work. I have a pretty unique role. I am a industrial organizational psychologist who works for a huge global technology company and interacts and supports, it's actually in the thousands of companies around the world on how to use technology to create more effective work environments. But also a big part of what I do also is looking at how are the work environments that we need to create changing, often largely due to technology. And what led me to write this book, and it's, it's the third book, I kind of joke, it's my third in my HR trilogy. Um, but it's the third book I've written. And it's, and if you've, I don't know if you've ever written a book before, but writing a book is basically like saying, I'm going to have no social life for like four months, you know, and hoping <laughs> yeah, that yeah. your spouse doesn't leave you. Um, so, you know, why did I decide to write another book? And it, it really came out of a couple things. One, a lot of people who had read my previous books were asking me if I was going to write another book, given how much things were changing over the last three years. You can imagine a person who does what I do. I've had a lot of conversations about a lot of things around, you know, from hybrid work to burnout to well-being to inclusion and just all the things going on. And so I thought about it and I was like, yeah, a lot of stuff has changed. But then also the next question I always ask myself is, does the world really need another HR book, right? And, you know, if I don't want to write a book, if I don't think it's going to add some sort of unique value. And I kind of thought, and I, you know, I read a lot of these other books that are out there. And what I realized is because of my job, I do have a somewhat unique perspective because most books about the future of work talk either about trends, you know, the top 10 trends that are happening, or they talk about new cool technologies, or they cynically just repackage things psychologists have known for a long time and just give them new labels. Um, You know, quiet quitting, also known as low engagement. Um, But the but what, what, what I hadn't seen is something that really reflects the work that I do, which is I wanted to write a book that didn't just talk about what's changing, but talked about why it's changing, including putting it in the context of the history of work, which is something, you know, I'm kind of a student of just because of what I do. So sort of, you know, talking about how work is changing, we need to also understand where work came from. And so that's part of what the book talks about. The other part of the book talks a lot about how we need to use technology to change. And that comes in sort of my knowledge of technology and what it can and cannot do which I think I have, a. am not saying no one understands all of technology, but I probably have a little better understanding of it just because I live in that world. Mm-hmm. And then the third thing that I also wanted to really factor into is the one thing about work that isn't changing. 
which is we need to adapt, use technology to adapt to work, taking into account the one thing about work that isn't changing, which is the psychology of people. The fundamental psychology of people doesn't change. We don't evolve that fast. Mm-hmm. I mean, you hear all this stuff about generational differences and yeah, there's differences in attitudes and beliefs, but the way I put it, it's like, yeah, my kids listen to different music than I do, but we both like to dance, <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, so that's why I wrote it. So, and in the book, there's a lot of research-based facts or opinions in there, but then there's also a lot of opinions that you have based on the thousands of customers that you've worked with. I'm curious if you can talk a little bit about, as you meet with all these customers, did they validate the fact that this book should be written? Yeah, I think... It's interesting because, yeah, the book does have a lot of citations. If I say something about people are this way, I cite the research based on it. Just, you know, mm-hmm. so I, that's the the PhD in me. Um, and so, you know, if somebody's really interested to dig more deeply, there's a lot of references to peer review literature and things like that. I, I kind of joke. I read the Journal of Applied Psychology, so you don't have to. <laughs> um, <laughs> but the... Uh, the other point about the customer stories, I do think that's one of the things that's in the book because I've heard so many different stories. So I'm able to illustrate concepts from actual customer stories. And what I've really learned from working with so many different customers across different industries is that there aren't best practices. When people ask me about, you know, what are the best practices for using technology? There aren't. What works for one company wouldn't necessarily work for another company. There's necessary things that if you don't do it, you're not going to be successful. Mm -hmm. But what I've found and what the book really tries to get at is the companies that are doing a really good job at adapting to the changing nature of work. It's not what they do. It's how they think about it. It's how they think about, for example, staffing positions where they are acutely aware that employees don't join companies because companies need employees. Employees join companies because they want to advance their career or support their life. So they have a different mindset in terms of kind of the questions they ask when they're solving what I call perennial work challenges, like how you design jobs, how you fill roles, how you develop people. And so the book gets into that, and that, <clears throat> into that, and that was very much informed. I think it was different from this from a lot of other books. I don't say, this is what so-and-so company does. You should mi- mimic it. It's more like, this is what we need to do, and this is how a company did it. Well, and also, I have a lot of stories about failures. I think we can learn a lot, too, because in the book, I don't intentionally don't put in names of companies, because often what I'm talking about, it doesn't make them look good, but we can learn from it. Right. Right. So can you talk a little bit, kind of general overview, right? We don't have to go chapter by chapter by any means, but an overview of what the book is about, and then we can go a little more granular from there. Yeah. Yeah. The book basically, it's in, I would say, falls into kind of a couple of different sections. It starts by talking about what I call talent tectonic forces, and I'll come back to that, but are what are the fundamental things that are changing the nature of work? Then it goes into talking about why we need to rethink employee experience and how we need to create employee experiences for people to deal with the change. It's very much into the psychology of people that is not changing. Then it goes through and talks about different kinds of technology. There's Because our understanding of technology enables and constrains our belief of what is possible. And so it doesn't talk about specific technologies because they would change by the time the book came out, but it talks about how technology is enabling us to act in different ways that weren't possible before. So like, I'll just give a really quick example. Self-scheduling. One of the biggest frustrations for employees in shift work is working these fixed schedules. It's incompatible. You know, it's, it's, a, it's taking away control of your own life, literally. And historically, companies had to set fixed schedules because that was the best they could do. But now, with technology, employees can do self-scheduling. They can say, hey, I want to take two hours off to see my kids play in a sports game or something, and I'll add two hours on Saturday. And the schedules become way more complicated, just like our actual lives. And it allows, so that's an example of technology changing the nature of work. But if you don't understand what technology can do, you would never even consider that as an option. You know, And so the, the book kind of talks about technology in terms of how we need to rethink what's possible based on technology. And then the last part of the book dives into looking at 
combining all these things together to rethink things like what I call perennial work challenges, how you design jobs, how you fill jobs, how you develop people, taking into account how work is changing, taking into account the psychology of people, and taking into account the capabilities of technology. And the very end of the book talks a little bit broadly about society in general. Um, there's, which is a challenging chapter to write because I really try not to be political and I really focused on it. But things like tying healthcare to employment really hurts our labor market because people don't change jobs because they make career decisions off of employee benefits. The US mm. is the only country in the world where somebody might say, well, I'd like to start a new company, but my kids will lose their dental care. I mean, we've conflated things and then also the education system and how it sets up. So it talks in a very, you know, as much as one can sound sort of just a descriptive thing about some of the broader societal issues we need to think about as we move into a very different world of work. So that's really interesting about the health chair, because to me, how you just explained it would suggest that that hook is working exactly the way that companies want it to work. So are you suggesting that it shouldn't be that way? I don't think companies want to be responsible for healthcare any more than they want to be responsible for employee housing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and to some degree, I'd say they're like the same thing. And if you look at the history of work, it is bad when you connect these things too tightly because <clears throat> it, you know, if you look at the history of company towns, if you want to know where this goes, read about the coal mining company towns of the late 19th century. Mm -hmm. um, people should be able to make employment decisions that don't devastate the rest of their life. But now yeah. the way we have it set up, it's like you lose your job. And by the way, your whole family loses its health care. And that's the one cost you can't control. I mean, there's right. just all kinds of problems with it. How to fix it. That's a whole, that would be a political book. But yeah. I think the point I make is that there are some fundamental things that we think about how work works that really don't make sense as we go into a world that's accelerated by accelerating change and jobs being eliminated by technology and new jobs being created. We need a much more fluid, dynamic workforce. Mm -hmm. The other thing, and, and, and tying employment and healthcare together really hurts the ability for people to pursue different careers and it hurts the ability for a company to hire people and be more flexible. It doesn't help anyone. Sure. Yeah. Um, the, I mean, the other one too, on just while you're on that topic, um, but then I think I should probably come back and talk about the talent tectonic forces because we're talking about the consequences of them. <laughs> but the other big topic is our education system. We don't have education system designed for lifelong learning. Um, we kind of have it segmented based on what was started in the 19th century, where you learn till you're about 22, you work for 40 years, you retire and die, um, as opposed to you never stop learning. It just goes your whole life. We don't have an education system set up for that way of thinking of learning as a lifelong thing. But yeah, but again, that's we're talking about the consequences. Maybe we should talk about the causes. <laughs> yeah, that'd be great. <clears throat> so. I guess I will go back. Then we'll go back to the beginning of the book. Why we need to look relook at things like you know healthcare and education, but even more so, we also need to really think at staffing and job design and all of this stuff. Gets into how work is being fundamentally altered by what I call talent tectonic forces, and I use that phrase kind of like the plate tectonics. We can't see the plates moving, but we experience the results of their movement, sometimes through like, you know, mountain ranges forming or sometimes through violent earthquakes. It's the same thing on a much shorter time scale of um, work, talent. So like if you looked in the 20th century, before I give the two that are affecting us right now, if you looked in the 20th century, examples of two talent tectonic forces, one was the workers' rights movement. Did it? Anyone who tells you work was better 100 years ago didn't work 100 years ago. I mean, work was physically brutal in a lot of jobs. Companies would literally factor in how many people were going to die on the job into their workforce forecasts. And there was no sense at the beginning of the 20th, you know, like around 1900, there was very little sense of employees having an obligation to protect the health and safety of employees. And there was a workers' rights movement 
which led to like in some cases revolutions in some countries, Mm -hmm. but fundamentally a fundamental change in society about the obligation of employers to protect the health and well-being of employees. And it came out, we resolved like, you know, paid vacation, safety rules, all kinds of things that didn't exist because society's basic view of work and the relationship between employees and employers changed. And it's still playing out now. We're still having implications of it. Another big shift, and I think it also on that point too, is it points that what changed was not the psychology of people. It wasn't like coal miners wanted to work in terrible, dangerous conditions, but in the 1800s, they didn't have the ability to change it. And then what changed is society changed for a variety of reasons, and they got the ability to demand safe working conditions, but it wasn't like the psychology changed, the conditions changed. Um, the other big 20th century one, just to mention it, is the education and entrance of women into the professional workforce. You know, again, a whole issue. And I, again, a good psychology, I don't think it was because women in the 1920s didn't want to be educated and paid for work. It was that society's attitudes changed. And again, we still have a long way to go on equity in that area, but we have, con- you know, you look, compare work now to 100 years ago, it was just, this is a huge change. So the so what are the two big changes that are happening now? They are one demographics that we are living longer and having fewer children, and this has been happening for over a hundred years. And so, and by longer, like the average life expectancy over the last hundred years has gone up about about thirty five years, and birth rates have gone down by about seventy percent mm-hmm. over the last hundred or so years, and it's. Different in different parts of the world, but the trend is pretty much the same in all developed nations. And so what's happening now is for the first time in history, there's more people aging out of labor markets and entering them. And if you look at the fundamental reason for all these talent shortages we're talking about, a very strong argument is made that simply the fact that we don't, like over the next 10 years in the United States, for the entire population, we're going to have about about 10 million people hit the age of 65, kind of when we tend to stop working, we're going to have about 11 million people enter the population, hit the age of 25. So we're gaining like 1 million people. Now only about 60% of those people work. And, but our economy continues to grow. It's projected to grow by about 11 million jobs. So you just do the math, (laughs) you know? And so so a lot of these things we're talking about labor shortages, it's not, and it's also not that we don't have enough people per se, it's that we're not fully utilizing all the people we have. Right. Going back to that point that actually participation in work, not unemployment, but just participation in work is going down. And so that's one of the big tectonic shifts is how do we need to rethink work and rethink organizations in a world where there's just a lot fewer people relative to what we were familiar with in the past? Mm -hmm. The other big tectonic shift is digitalization. And it's and this one I think is even more profound than the demographic one, which is technology permeating every single aspect of our lives. Well, what does that mean to work? <clears throat> First and foremost, it's accelerating the rate of change in work. Whatever we're doing, it's going to change because something's going to disrupt our industry, the way we manufacture, whatever. There's going to be a change. And so we need to manage people to be adaptable as opposed to productive which psychologically is very, very different because we're most productive when we're doing stuff we already know how to do as opposed to adaptability is managing people to tap into this amazing innate ability we have to learn. We're really good at dealing with change if we have the right experience of work. If we don't, we go into a survival mindset. So the book talks a lot about how do you create that. But the other big thing related to it too is that the purpose of work itself is changing because of digitalization. You know, 200 years ago, the main reason most people worked, like 80% of the work, was to grow and distribute food to keep us alive. The purpose of work was so we didn't die. Mm-hmm. I always joke when people talk about we need meaningful work. <laughs> There's meaningful work for you. <laughs> then you had the Industrial Revolution, and it changed. So we went from you know growing food to keep us alive to making things to make us comfortable clothes and cars and stuff like that well with automation what's changed now is most jobs are called service jobs and what is a service job what is the purpose of it it's to exceed someone's expectations mm-hmm. well how does that mean you have to be caring creative collaborative we can't do this stuff if we feel burned out and exhausted 
But what has happened is work has become physically much easier, but psychologically much more difficult. And so employee experience isn't just about engaging and retaining employees to give to the demographic shifts. It's also that people literally can't do what companies want them to do if they're not having a good experience at work. You can't be creative and caring if you feel burned out and exhausted and distracted. Yeah. And so that's what the book dives into this whole topic. That's super interesting. Jess, did you have, sorry, did you have a question? Yeah, I just, that was incredibly interesting and really uh, well stated. I I want people to go out and buy your book, so I don't want you to give away all of your secrets on this podcast, but could you dive a little bit deeper maybe into some things that you encourage employers to think about to improve upon the overall morale and engagement and give employees some of the things that they need to want to remain a member of their workforce? Yeah, yeah. And and just, it's a 250-page book, so don't worry. I'm not okay. <laughs> Unless it's the, if I if I went that long, I would put myself to sleep. Um, <laughs> the um, no, I think that when you look at employee experience, it's really interesting because the experience that makes work fulfilling and engaging is tied very much to some fundamental psychological needs. And for any psychologists out there in the this audience, this traces back to McClellan's fundamental needs for achievement affiliation and agency or confidence. And so when people have three things, they are really good at dealing with change. And I kind of reminded some, you know, I've had asked multiple times in my career, how do you train employees to be adaptable? And I'm always like, that's the wrong question. We're born adaptable. You know, the only thing kids know how to do is when they're born is eat, poop, and learn. And I joke, if you've had children, they're really good at all three of those things. <laughs> but it's like, as, an, as a parent, you don't teach your kids how to learn. You create an environment that taps into that sort of innate ability and desire just to learn. And it really is tied to three psychological things. First, a sense of meaning and purpose to what you're doing, which is I understand does this job fulfill what I want out of work? And that can be higher order fulfilling my career, but also very transactional, allowing me to support my family. You know, do I understand why I'm working and it's meaningful to me? The second thing is, do I feel confident I can get done what needs to get done, which is about confidence and efficacy and technology has a huge role in this. I mean, if you've ever yelled at your phone or computer, you know what a bad sense of like what I call task experience is, you know, so making sure people feel confident. And then the third one, and this is really interesting, especially in the pandemic, we saw this really roll up is humans are social animals. We need to feel people care and support for us, particularly when we're in stress. So a sense of belonging. Now, when people have these three things, I know why I'm doing what I'm doing. It matters to me. I'm confident I've got the tools to get it done. And I'm working with a team of people that are going to support me. We can deal with amazing levels of change. I mean, when people are talking about all the change we're going through in the pandemic, and I was thinking, you go back to my great-great-grandparents, they crossed the United States in a wagon, you know, <laughs> talk about change, you know, so we can deal with amazing change if we have those three things. And yes, it's stressful, but it's good stress. It's the stress of working together to get stuff done. We're fully engaged. When you think about your own career, it pro the, the most enjoyable parts of your own career were probably times of considerable change. But if any of those drops below a certain level, your work goes from like purposeful to meaningless and pointless. You feel alone and isolated. You feel frustrated and inefficient. Then we go from work being, wow, I'm getting stuff done to you. How am I going to survive? Mm -hmm. And that's the whole focus of the book. Talks about how we need to reapproach work and use technology because technology plays a big role in allowing us to reimagine how we work to ensure employees have those three things, a sense of purpose, a sense of camaraderie and belongingness, and a sense of confidence and effectiveness. Can we unpack the the first one about, you know, having meaning in the work that we're doing? Because I, I think when when people hear this, maybe even listeners of this episode, I think they think about meaning in the very basic sense. Like give an example, 
I work in the logistics industry. There might be some people that work for my organization that are like, it is very meaningful to me that I work for an organization that's getting supplies to people that need them quickly. That means a lot to me. But I think what I'm hearing you say, Steve, is that the meaning goes well beyond just the industry that the company works for. So can you unpack that a bit and just give it a little bit more context? Yeah, yeah. If you look at the purpose of why we work, and I think this is actually really important too. One of the things we need to change societally is to realize this concept that people don't want to work. We do want to work. Again, it goes, it's a fundamental desire to accomplish things that are meaningful. So there's a reason why the word meaningless is a synonym for depression. People are healthier when they have a reason to get up in the morning. And actually, the book talks about one of the things about why we need to rethink retirement too. Um, yeah. You know, it's a health risk to stop working. It's good to have a reason to get up in the morning. And so you kind of look at, well, what is the purpose of what people want to accomplish? It tends to fall into three areas. And, and they're all important, but at different phases of our lives, certain ones will trump. What, what is the purpose of working? Sometimes the purpose of working is what I call save the planet stuff. We want to be contributing. Usually it's to the betterment of living creatures, either the planet or people that we get a lot of as humans get a lot of meaning of I am helping the life of someone or something else. The second one is self-fulfillment, self-actualization, that the purpose of work is for me to be all I can be, to develop new capabilities, to accomplish what that fits with my sort of self-image. And the third one, though, that is often overlooked is the purpose of work is to support the things that I want that give me fulfillment outside of work, spending time with my kids, you know, providing for my family, pursuing other hobbies. And so, and those are going to be different in different kinds of jobs, too. I think that's one of the things that's often missed. You know, the bulk of people in the United States work in what are called deskless jobs. And people working in deskless jobs often work, and it's, I, I don't, I, I'm always reticent to make generalizations, but they tend to not identify so much with their profession. If you ask, hey, what do you do? Their answer isn't, I'm an Iowa psychologist, it's, I'm a hunter. Right, <laughs> you know, it's sort of work. Work fulfills a different purpose. So I think a lot of what the what the book gets into is we need to understand work can have different purposes, but also don't guess. We can use technology to ask people what they want. So let's do it. Let's mm -hmm. listen to employees a lot more as opposed to trying to guess what we think they want from work. Ask them what they want. And then find a way that you can give it to them that supports the needs of the company. I do think on that, too, a point that's really important is when I talk about the importance of employee experience, it doesn't mean it's more important than company needs. It's equally important because the best experiences come from working for profitable, successful companies. Good employee experiences don't come from companies that aren't profitable and growing. Mm -hmm. And so the challenge is, though, that you can't have a profitable and growing company in the future of work if you don't provide good employee experiences. So it's about putting these two things at an equal level where historically we tended to focus a lot more on company needs first to know, by the way, we'll do, remember the old WIFM exercises, what's in it for me? Yeah. After we decide what the company wants, we'll try to come up with some crazy reason why employees would want to do it. And if we can't convince them, we just attach their paycheck to it and force yeah. them to do it. <laughs> So with those three things, um, the save the planet type things, self-fulfillment, kind of support the things that are important to me in my personal life, do you think that that's kind of a two-pronged approach for employers, meaning a lot of those questions should be asked up front as part of the recruiting process, that dialogue between candidate and recruiter. And then if if all of those boxes are kind of checked, let's say during that process, both parties think it's a good fit, then do you think that that continues to be massaged and um, you know watered, if you mm -hmm. will, through employee listening strategies to your point, and then kind of following up and taking action on what um, organizations are hearing from their employee population? Yeah, yeah, it's, I, absolutely. I think you know, you definitely want to do a lot of work up front to say that is this work and company compatible with the basic things you want from work? And I, I love your point about water too, because I always use the analogy to, you know, building a workforce, you're not building a house, you're growing a garden, right? <laughs> so first of all, you can make sure, can this plant grow in this soil? 
But once you determine that, then I think a lot of it is finding ways to realize that what people want from work is going to change over their career. Um, you know, a lot of the stuff that is sort of often associated with, you know, Gen Z wants this and boomers want that it has nothing to do with when they were born. It has to do with the career stage you're in. For example, you know, people in early career stage want more career growth and development because they're in early career stage. So you're more established and maybe you have a family and all those other things. You want a little more stability in your job. <laughs> you know, there's enough change when you, if you have teenagers in the house, there's enough drama going on. You don't want any at work. <laughs> but the, so, but understanding that that's going to change, just like when you, plant a plant, it changes over time and you may need some more water or less water or different changes over time. And this is where technology has a really big impact. Look for ways to give employees flexibility to define their job the way that makes sense for them, as long as they're fulfilling the objectives. So I talked earlier about like, you know, self-scheduling flexibility. This move to hybrid work. I've had zillions of conversations about hybrid and remote work. You can imagine in my role. And the, the two things that I would absolutely argue every employee wants, because some people want to work from home, some people don't want to work from home, has a lot to do with your commute distance, the kind of job you have, your home office, da-da-da-da-da. There's two things every single person wants, though. One, they want the flexibility to decide what makes sense for them. Don't tell me how I should work or whether I should be in an office or not. Let me decide what makes sense. And two, they want transparency on the impact of their decisions. If you're going to judge me on FaceTime in the office, tell me you're going to judge me on FaceTime in the office and I'll come in. But, you know, be very transparent in how I am evaluated in terms of, you know, am I doing what I'm supposed to do as a job? And it's interesting because this one on evaluation is counter to that very damaging trend we had a few years ago of get rid of ratings, which as a customer put it beautifully, you can eliminate formal ratings, but you cannot eliminate the need to judge people at work. And being evaluated, is that stressful? Yes, but it's far worse to know you're being evaluated and not know how it's done. And so if you look at a general watchword for creating effective employee experiences, the two things are flexibility and transparency. Mm. Yeah. And I think one would argue, you know, for leaders out there where they're like, oh, it makes me really uncomfortable if I can't see my employee or it makes me uncomfortable if my employee is building their schedule. How do I know that they're getting in their 40 hours of work or whatever the frustration or argument is there? That if all three of those uh, things that you indicated are being met, that an employee wants to do their best work. Absolutely. And they're going to show up and they're going to get the work done. They're going to meet the customer's needs, you know, whatever need is to be met because they feel like they're valued and there's meaning in the work that they're being, that they're yeah, providing. Absolutely. And I mean, if anything, the research too shows that people remote working remotely tend to work more. Um, right. And if you're a manager as a leader, if you need to see people to see if they're doing a good job, you're not a good manager. You know, you're not setting clear goals. You're not providing effective feedback. I mean, unless you're managing ballet dancers, you shouldn't have to watch people to know if they're doing a good job. I think that I have very, to be honest, I have very little patience for leaders that are like everyone back in the office because also it's incredibly exclusive. If you're the person who is the primary family care provider, that is the person that if the kids get sick at school, you have to pick them up. You're the one expected to do it. The ability to work flexibly and remotely can be the difference between being able to work and not work at all. Mm -hmm. And in our society, that's mainly women. Mm -hmm. I, and on that point, whenever I hear leaders talk about, we need everyone in the office on these days, not to meet just simply because I want you in the office. It is never a person that is the primary family care provider. Yeah, And usually the they have a very short commute. And often it's leaders that are never in the office anyhow. Yeah. And it's the reason why we saw such a mass exodus of women leave the workforce during COVID mm -hmm. because of the role that women do traditionally play in a, yeah, in a which, household. Which the book actually talks briefly about that we have to, we would be far better if we realized that education and childcare should not be treated as the same thing. Mm -hmm. yeah. But that's getting back into the last chapter of the book. <laughs> Jess, you had asked a little bit about recruiting and getting the right people in. And then Steve, you had spoke earlier about the shortage of workers mm -hmm. that we're running into. And I'm curious, 
if if you talk about it in the book or if you can offer an opinion just on the podcast, but people are so companies are looking for the best person, but they're also just looking for a person. And so how does technology maybe play a role in being able to facilitate quickly getting people, but also making sure it's the right people? Because you understand what I'm saying? There's a little bit of a conundrum there, right? We want the best people, but we need people as well. Yeah. Um, No, that's a really good question. I think, well, obviously, obviously technology can help you find people far better than you ever could before with, you know, various, you know, searching algorithms and machine learning assessments and all this stuff. So, you know, we really need to leverage the heck out of technology to identify people that have the capabilities and reach out to them and manage relationships with them. But I think the two at at a bigger level, though, because one of the challenges is because of the demographic shifts is the traditional recruiting methods only work if there's actually a qualified candidate out there. Mm-hmm. And increasingly, there may not be. Often the skills we're looking for didn't even exist four years ago, right? And so you're kind of pumping from a dry well, if you, you know, and to some degree. So I think one of the changes, and companies are starting to do this, is one, focus more on hire for potential as opposed to qualifications. And recognize, and this is one of the things that when companies think about recruiting, they don't realize, they they tend to think of it in isolation. This is getting better, but it's like, look, the the most important step for recruiting is job design. You know, and I, you know, it's like, uh, you know, make sure you're designing jobs that there's actually people that could do them, you know, and that often means designing jobs for development. We're not going to bring somebody in and have them ready now on day one. So we're going to design the jobs and staff the workforce, realizing there's going to be a learning curve. The second one is development and recruiting are two sides of the same coin. Who you're able to hire depends on how you're going to develop them and how you're going to develop them depends on who you're going to have to hire. So mm-hmm. recruiters and and organizational development and training specialists need to be like just wired together when you start going out to look at the candidate populations. Whereas historically it was more like the recruiters hire them, throw them over the wall to the developers. Now it's like, no, if we change our, if we change our training program, we can change our candidate pool. And so looking at that and getting, and we have, you know, technology is enabling us to be so much more effective at development through things like micro learning, social learning, and all these different technologies are enabling companies to be much more effective at, the development they were in the past. The other thing that is really, really fascinating, I think is going to be a a societal imperative, but it's also one of these things where we need to do for business reasons, but for like societal reasons, it's good too, is we need to look at how can we design jobs and change recruiting to tap into what is the really underutilized portions of our population, which are people with no education past high school, which is like one third of the U.S. population. And often people, if you have no education, if you have put it this way, if you have any education past high school, you had opportunities in life that a lot of people didn't get. They made things like a stable household, a certain level of economic security. There's things that basically make it very difficult for a lot of people in our society to get an education past high school. A lot of things were called adverse childhood experiences. And so one of the projects that I'm really excited that I'm working on at SAP, we call it social sustainability, which is how can we use technology to reach out to these populations that require recruiting much differently, that require job design much differently. Often, I mean, you may be bringing somebody in who nobody in their family has ever worked for a company like yours. You know, so there it's a really different approach. But I think that's one of the things when you look at the long-term issue with our staffing shortages, it's got to be either, it's going to be three things. One, we're just going to automate more and more stuff. But I tend to think if something can be automated, it should be automated because that's repetitive work, mm-hmm. which is sort of inhuman work. But we're also going to have to get much better at using immigration as reality, something like um, I think it's like 70% of the employers, 17% of employees, and don't quote me on that stat, but it's something like that, are foreign born in the United States. I think people mm-hmm. don't realize we couldn't function 
and again, this I don't want to get into politics, but just economics. We could not function as a society, and this is and this is even more true in other countries without reliance on, you know, immigrant labor. Mm-hmm. Um, and the third one, though, is we need to get a lot better at leveraging the people in our own population. We, we historically we've left a lot of people behind because we, I mean, it wasn't intentional, but we could get away with it. That's really not an option. You know, you're, we need to get far better economically to reach out into all segments of our population. So you're seeing really cool stuff around like neurodiversity. How do we employ people with disabilities? Um, how do we employ people that come from very adverse sort of economic backgrounds? And that requires really rethinking work in some pretty profound ways. But I am an optimist. I think that's the positive of this, though, is this labor shortages are going to focus us to rethink work to be far more inclusive in general. Mm -hmm. Your comment there, Steve, was very serendipitous because I had written down that I wanted to get your thoughts or philosophy on removing educational requirements from job descriptions. Mm -hmm. Um, And you kind of answered, you didn't answer the question, but you did answer the question. Um, (laughs) And so with that being said, you know, what would you say to organizations that Um, I'll just actually use technology. I think technology is a great example. You know, some organizations would say, well, I can never hire a software engineer that doesn't have a degree in software engineering. Mm -hmm. What would you, you know, what would you say to organizations to get more creative? And then, sorry, my, my hamster is running really fast on my wheel right now, is that you had made a comment earlier in the podcast about how our education system is essentially messed up. You know, it's built Mm -hmm. to teach us until we're in our 20s, late 20s, and then just stop. And then Mm -hmm. we're kind of expected to learn on our own. So I feel like there's something with what you said at the beginning of the podcast, Mm -hmm. tying it into this comment, where organizations could be making a much bigger impact on education than they have been historically. And, or Mm -hmm. I even hear about them talking about and or going forward, like I'm not hearing companies talk about how they're going to make changes or how they're going to impact education besides helping people pay off their loans. Yeah. So, well, I guess unpack a few things that you had in that question. Yeah, I think sorry, all, that was very random. No, no, it's, it's great. Um, <laughs> it's very rewarding because it showed that you were listening to me. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, the, the, the first one on removing the college education, and first of all, I, nothing wrong with having a college degree. I have a PhD, so I'm not going to besmirch the value of like formal education. And you know, and there's certain things you, you really can't learn on the job, right? You're not going to learn biomedical engineering, you know, on the job. But there are a lot of jobs, and I know a lot of tech companies. They're saying we don't necessarily need a college education or a college degree for a lot of jobs. But then the challenge becomes, we're not going to hire you because you don't have a college degree. So finding new ways, and there's really interesting things with like simulations and other methods that allow us to assess whether or not people have the potential to learn quickly, but also recognizing that the development path is going to look different too. So having a longer ramp time. Now, I think this also gets some of the things too, though, that employees, one of the myths again, is that people are quitting jobs more often. That's not actually true. Actually, people in their 20s and the 19, it has a lot, how often you quit jobs has a lot to do with how old you are, where you are in your career, more so not how old you are, but where you are in your career. People in their 20s change jobs more than people in their 30s, right? It has to do with life situation and other things like that. I mean, interestingly, people in their 20s and the 80s change jobs more than people in their 20s do now. So I think the main point I'd make is sort of getting back to the fundamental psychology of people. People aren't necessarily looking to change jobs all the time. What's happened is now, people, there's no punishment for changing jobs societally, and the internet's gotten so good at it, everyone's two clicks of Google from another job, right? So that's what we saw in this, quote, quote, great resignation. If you looked at the data, it wasn't a resignation so much as a reshuffling. It was a resignation in some industries like healthcare, which we also should be freaking out about, but I'm not, let's not go there. (laughs) Um, But the, uh, the... It was people basically saying, ah, my job sucks and I can get a better job. You know, as soon as you had like, you know, Amazon and Walmart offering 15 plus dollars an hour full benefits, it was like, well, why wouldn't I go there? Right. So um, 
I think what we're looking though is when you look at this though, that if you give people an opportunity and you come in and you do develop them, they are going to show more loyalty. They are going to stay longer. And I think that's part of companies kind of hiring for the longer term, which is almost a move back to the past that we're going to look for people. We're going to hire for potential. We're going to think about their three or four year trajectory. And it's, and it does require a longer term thinking. I think it's interesting too, the companies that I think do this the best in my just experience are privately held companies. I think publicly held companies have all this pressure from external shareholders to maximize profits where the privately owned companies are like, hey, we're trying to build a legacy for multiple generations. I think they tend to be better at that. Mm-hmm. But um, I think the public companies are realizing we have to do it too. Mm-hmm. The um, So that would kind of like the look at getting rid of like the educational requirements. We just have to rethink staffing and hiring and developing. Um, the other one about the education though, we we do, I think, really need to realize how do we set up a society where currently we have a for-profit education system. And we don't realize that investing in the education of your workforce is like investing in the energy infrastructure of your country. It's an economic thing. Other countries do get that. The United States doesn't seem to get it. And so you run into this issue, like I'll, I'll give an example. What technology tends to eliminate or what are sort of called, um, I don't want to say, are like good paying, semi, not um, accessible skilled jobs. Jobs that are repetitive because that's what technology does. It automates, but they're jobs that are complex enough that there's a learning curve that you can learn them. And so like a good example would be, I'll take truck drivers. Truck driving is a good paying job. It takes, you know, certainly months and probably years to become a really good truck driver. You know, it's highly skilled. And because it takes, but it's also a job that is relatively accessible. Most people could become a truck driver, right? And it is kind of a learn as you go along. So it is a really good source of a good paying job for a lot of people in our society. All the technology points at some point, we're going to have self-driving trucks because there's a chronic shortage of truck drivers because it takes years to learn how to do it. <laughs> so there's pressure to automate it. And the t- and it is, and we're seeing, you know, is although it's very complex, it is repetitive. You know, you're facing this and it's, that's why we have self-driving cars. And so at some point we're probably going to have self-driving trucks. And when it happens, it will probably happen very quickly. As soon as like it happens in one place, it'll spread like mad. What happens to the millions of people that are probably mid-career with families that were driving trucks when suddenly their jobs are gone? They can't stop working and pay to go to school full-time. They've got to rent. They've got kids. What happens to them? Do we just kick them to the curb? We need to think as a society, and I don't pretend to have the answers, but I'd like to see more dialogue at least going on. As a society, how do we have, if you want for a better term, an educational safety net such that people midlife can relearn different careers in a way that does not devastate them financially? Mm-hmm. And that, I think, to your point, I, I think that companies need to play more of a role in that. And we're starting to see play more of a role. It was a really interesting conversation I had with some CHROs about the various ways, and this was more around um, diversity and equity. And, you know, should companies be involved in politics? And it was really interesting because the CHRO said, we've always been involved in politics. We've been lobbying for lower taxes forever. It doesn't get more political than that. (laughs) But now we realize for us to be successful and sustainable, we need to lobby for other changes in society beyond just tax structures. And it's things like education. It's things like healthcare. It's things like Huckabee. We're very early on in this, but I think it is a fundamental shift. If companies are going to say we care about more than money, then part of caring about more than money is engaging society in a different way. And I think we're seeing that happen, which I think is a positive thing. I mean, do I wish our government did more? Yeah, don't we all, but you know, let's, let's focus on change where we think it can happen. Mm -hmm. 
Well, I know we're we're running up against time here, and this has been fantastic. I have a bunch of questions we didn't get to, but that's okay. I would tell everybody to probably go buy the book. The answers are probably in there. I do want to give you a chance to tell everybody where they can purchase it. I'm sure it's everywhere, but um, tell them that, and then also how they can maybe get in contact with Steve or with you, Steve, if they want to learn more about the book or whatever else you do. Uh, but last question is your favorite chapter in the book. My favorite chapter in the book. You have it, to pick one. <laughs> <laughs> it's the, the most informative is chapter two. Probably the most interesting is like chapter is chapter 10 as this gets into the social issues. But I think the most practical ones are earlier on. Um, so, yeah, I guess I'd have to say that it's chapter Chapter one or chapter two, because those are very practical. Chapter 10 is more just thinking about the stuff we'd like to talk about, but I yeah. think needs to be talked about. Um, I would say to the book, though, I will point the book is why it's written to be read as a narrative from front to back. I very intentionally wrote it so you can read individual chapters by themselves. So like, there's a chapter just on how do we make better use of data for creating better employee experiences. There's a chapter on how do we rethink staffing. So when you get the book, you can just what I would recommend is somebody definitely read the first two chapters, but then you can just sort of pick and choose the chapters that tie into mm -hmm. as much as I'd like to think it's a riveting page turner, you know, I'm realistic. It's a book about HR. It can only be so interesting. <laughs> Fair enough. And I'm, I'm assuming it can be purchased anywhere that books are sold. It can. Um, so to get it one, if you want to learn more about the book, there is a website, talenttectonics.com that kind of, talks through the chapters and stuff, but um, Amazon, any source, any place you can buy books, you can find it. And um, also definitely reach out to me on LinkedIn, you know, follow mm -hmm. me on LinkedIn, connect with me. I post on stuff like this all the time. And if people have questions or thoughts or challenges, anything I said on in this call, I would love to hear that too. Um, I always say, you know, I'm always learning all the time. And so I think one of the things I love about my job is talking to a lot of people where we I don't always agree, but that's, I always mm -hmm. like to say the truth lies between us. So yeah. Welcome yeah. To those conversations. Well, thank you, Steve, for joining us. It's been a pleasure having you on and you know, wish you the best with, with the book. And uh, I'm glad to hear your trilogy is completed and hopefully we can have you on again here soon. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this episode of What the HR. If you want to hear more episodes like this, be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or whatever platform you're listening through now. If you enjoyed the podcast, do us a favor and share with your network, your boss, or your CEO. Help us get this podcast in front of anyone who wants to know what HR looks like when done well. Also, if you have any questions for show topics or people you'd like us to interview, please email Mike and I at podcast at tcsherm.org. That's podcast at tcsharm.org. If you want to find out more about Twin City Sherm or our upcoming events, please visit our website at tcsherm.org. You can also follow us on LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And finally, if you're not already a member of Twin City Sherm, please use code WHATTHR at checkout to receive $20 off your membership. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next episode.